Hey, good morning. How we doing? Okay, take your Bibles, turn to Daniel 1 while you're turning there. Do you want the good news or the bad news? That tells a lot about you that you can't even figure that one out. Okay, so I'm going to start with the good news. Um, Well, it doesn't start like good news. Calvin's not here this morning. He's at um, home. His family's been battling COVID. Um, His daughters have been running a fever for like eight days. Mary's been sick. So keep them in your prayers. But what that means is you're going to get out early this morning because I got to be done by 10.15 so that I can jump in my car and drive back and preach at the 11 o'clock, okay? And that's pretty tight window, and it works okay if the roads are clear. So we're going to see what happens if I can get back on time, but all of that means I'll be done here at 10.15. Here's the bad news. I didn't shorten my sermon one bit. I'm going to talk fast, and you're going to have to listen fast. You okay? So we're going to be in Daniel 1. We have been in a series. This is actually the last message in this series on Christian worldview. Uh, Next week, we are going to be here doing a question and answer. So submit your questions to the church. And I am quite positive that today's message will generate some questions. Many of you are not going to um, be real fond of what I'm teaching today. It's going to be a little bit controversial. And I'm sure that today will generate questions. And uh, just be sure if you've got immediate questions that need to be answered, there will be men, not me, standing in front. Go ahead and ask them, okay? Um, This is more of a hit and run. But um, in our cultural study, we've been contrasting a biblical worldview, how a Christian views our universe, our world, our culture, and how that is in contrast to many of the beliefs and the values that are held in our society today. We have used words like um, secular humanism, or um, expressive or excessive individualism to describe our cultural worldview. This idea that um, nobody gets to tell us what to do. We should have absolute right to pursue happiness without any authority. Nobody gets to tell us what to do. And, And I would just say that just to get to the point, secular humanism and expressive individualism, those are simply fancy terms for the word selfishness. That's all it is. And, and, and what our culture has done is it has placed the ultimate authority on the individual. And quite honestly, that's the virtue in our culture that is defended most fiercely today. The right that you have to do whatever you want to do. And, and this secular humanism, this selfishness, it's invaded every aspect of our lives. It is invaded the church. It has invaded the workplace. It has invaded the schools. It has invaded the way that we view and approach the family, marriage, sex, our possessions, all of it. And what we've continually asked through this series is, let's take a step back for a moment and consider, is secular humanism, is this selfish approach actually working? Is it getting us to the place where we want to be? Primarily, are we happier? Are are we a better people? Are are, are we more civilized? Sadly, submission to authority throughout our culture has been replaced by criticism of authority. This is true everywhere you look. It's child to parent. It's player to coach. It's student to teacher, it is worker to boss, it is citizen to government. Submission to authority has been replaced with criticism of authority, and this is being 
reinforced to us every day. Just go on social media, you'll see it everywhere. Turn on your major um, news outlets. If there is a Republican in office, CNN's gonna be critiquing his every move. If there is a Democrat in office, Fox News will be critiquing his every move 24-7. Modeled for us, reinforced to us, a spirit of criticism of our authorities. And as we consider secular humanism and how it has kind of impacted every aspect of our lives, one last place we want to look, how it is impacted or how it is it affecting us in our government and in our politics, and then once again ask this question, is it working? Today our country, on so many fronts, is in crisis. We have crisis at the border. We have lawless cities. We have gender optionality being taught in our elementary and middle schools, marriages, family, faith. Their influence is on the decline by any metric. It's weird, we're, we're struggling even within our economy, the world's uh, most economically affluent culture and economy. We've got shortages everywhere. And it's not hard to look just as somebody going through daily life like things are not going well. Something is not working. And please hear me, I love our country. There is nowhere else that I would rather live. And the personal freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy in this country, and quite often just through day-to-day life we often take for granted, it does not escape my notice that these things were earned, fought for, and bought by the sacrifices of brave men and families and women on our behalf. Like, like, I love our country. Our country was founded on the principle that all of us have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are referred to as our inalienable rights. But please hear me, the fathers and founders of our country understood and wrote extensively that for any republic or democracy to survive, any government by the people, for the people to thrive, It had to be built on a foundation of morality and what our early fathers referred to as civil virtue. Now, now that might be a term that's not so familiar to you, but that idea of civil virtue is simply this, a willingness to lay aside our own self-interest for the common good. Not not selfishness, but selflessness. That elected officials would value the needs of the people they represent above their own self-interest. And sadly, when the selfishness of secular humanism invades our politics and our government, civil virtue is lost. When elected officials officials and their decision-making processes are based on what gets me elected rather than what is good, what keeps me in office, what gets me re-elected rather than what is right, What what gives more power to my political party than represents my people well? When their decisions are driven by self-interest rather than what is prudent, rather than what is wise. When as citizens, we approach the elections thinking, which candidate is better for my specific personal situation? And we go to the voting box and Well, I know we've got that issue of national debt, but who's going to lower taxes? How far can we push off the problems that we have to deal with so that we can continue to enjoy the comforts of today rather than tighten our belts and deal with the difficult issues, even if it creates some hardship, some uncomfortableness? 
when our officials are driven by self-interest, when our citizens have embraced selfishness and self-interest, it ultimately leads, hear me on this, to the erosion of our individual rights and freedoms. Here's a question for you. Has our demand for personal freedoms made us more or less free as a nation? Has we embraced secular humanism and demand that we can do whatever we want to do without an authority or some moral absolute, are we actually becoming more free as we embrace the spirit of our day? Throughout this series, I've bored you with a bunch of stats, only one stat this morning, I promise, okay? USA Today, they published a poll that was put out by the Harris Poll. So it was in USA Today, and here's what it said. 92% of Americans believe that our rights, our liberties, and our freedoms are under siege, that they're being eroded. 92%. In a country where we can't agree on anything, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, upper class, middle class, lower class, you ask anybody, are our personal freedoms being eroded right now? 92% say yes. And, and, and here's the kicker with that stat. That survey was conducted in December of 2019, pre-pandemic, pre-force closures, pre-executive orders, pre-mask mandates, pre-vaccine mandates. If we were to retake that survey now, do you think the number's gone up or down? Well, for sure it's gone up. Everywhere we look, freedoms are being restricted. Liberties are disappearing. Unchecked selfishness does not lead to increased liberty. It leads to anarchy and bondage. And it's interesting. Our early founding fathers and our early leaders, they understood this completely. That's why they argued for the pursuit of happiness built on a foundation of selflessness, of moral absolutes and civil virtue, putting the needs of the commonwealth above our own self-interest. Benjamin Franklin said it this way, nothing brings more pain than too much pleasure, nothing more bondage than too much liberty. James Madison said, liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty as well as the abuses of power. Theodore Roosevelt said, no people were ever yet benefited by riches if their prosperity corrupted their virtue. And General Douglas MacArthur, hear this, this is interesting. He said, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There's been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to, the ultimate, leading to ultimate national disaster. Secular humanism as it relates to what is, how it has impacted our government, again, I ask the question, is it working? Are we more free? Are we happier? And I think the data would support that all of us are concerned that we're finding ourselves more and more in bondage, more and more being told what to do, more and more liberties eroded. So, so here becomes the question. This is actually kind of a, a, a capstone moment for the whole series. We've looked at biblical worldview. We've contrasted it with secular humanism. We understand the conflict. We've looked at secular humanism as it affects every aspect of our lives, continuing to ask where it works and the statistics 
say it is not. So where we're left is his followers of Jesus Christ who hold to a biblical world. How are we, how do we live? How do we respond? How do we function within a culture that's growing darker and darker? Thinking to myself, man, I just wish God's word had something to say about this. Like, like God, couldn't you have given us just like a passage in the Bible that we could go to where we could see exactly how we're to handle the situation that we find ourselves in today? Hey, good news, Daniel 1. If you're keeping notes, the big idea this morning is simply this. It's actually a question. Here's the big question. Who is at the center of your convictions? Who is at the center of your convictions And the argument that I'm going to be making this morning is simply this, against a culture that is growing dark because of selfishness, the greatest light that we can be for the gospel is to live lives that are selfless. Hopefully you'll see this on display in the book of Daniel. So if you're keeping notes, here's the first point under the first section, how to survive cultural conflict. You'll find it in Daniel 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. The first point is this, form a conviction. Now, now a conviction, just so we're on the same page, that's something that you hold dear, that's a belief that you hold to be true, okay, that you are willing to go to the mat for, that you are willing to die for. It is something that you say, this is a principle by which I live, that I'm willing to suffer, suffer the consequences for holding the conviction. It says this in Daniel 1 verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here's what's going on. The world power of that day, Babylon, the strongest nation on the planet. By the way, I can also argue from the book of Revelation, the darkest, most wicked culture that's ever existed on the face of the earth. Babylon has come after Judah. The northern nation of Israel has already fallen. Judah is the last stand of the people of the nation of Israel. It has besieged its capital, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is about to fall. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought these vessels to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement here. He's making a point. The gods of Babylon are greater than the gods of Israel. This is just about nation versus nation. This is the gods of Babylon are greater than the nation of Israel. And in doing so, he misses the most important four words in verse 2. They're the first four. And the Lord gave. The Lord gave. This battle is not determined by the power of the two nations. It's who the Lord gave the victory to. And the only point I want to make there, I I, I just got to tell you from my perspective, I look at what's going on in our culture, and there are some days where I'm like, it doesn't feel like God's winning. Anybody else ever feel that way? Like, 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 what's going on? And, 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 And we're not gaining ground, we're losing ground. Please hear me. God is always in control of who is in control. God is always in control of who is in control. That's the point that is made in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Okay, there's going to be four men in this story, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are going to be um, hit full attack by a wicked culture on the conditions of their life. Let's read about it, verse 3. Then the king commanded... Ashpenaz, 
his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So let's just look at what's happened to these men and their personal freedoms. They were taken from their homes. They were taken from a position of privilege. They were the children of nobility, of royalty, and they were now made slaves. Not only were they taken from their family, any hope they had of having a family of their own was taken from them. They were made eunuchs. And you're like, I don't see that explicitly in the text. Well, here's what I'll tell you. If the guy in charge of you is called the chief of the eunuchs, I don't think that's a big leap, do you? They're told what they can and cannot put into their bodies. They're told they can only eat the king's food. They're re-indoctrinated through education. Hey, do you think that the Babylonian education and literature was favorable towards the history of Israel and their gods? They were re-indoctrinated. Their identity was stolen. They were given new names. Look at verse 8. It says this. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So, so Daniel has a, a conviction. He, he has an objection. It has to do with eating from the king's table, eating the king's food. Now, now here's a question. Why the food? But like, like, why is that the point of objection? As a matter of fact, the way I look at it, the food was kind of the only perk in his current situation. It was good food. Like, if I was going to make an objection, I think I would have made it up near the, the eunuch part or the slave part. No, no, no Daniel, it's the food. And, and the reason I make that point is I want you to understand, the one thing that he objected to was the only thing on our list of what he's having to endure that wasn't in his own self-interest. Daniel objects to the food. Why would he object to the food? Well, Daniel being Hebrew... Levitical law forbid him from eating food that was unclean. He had a kosher diet. He would have been told to avoid certain foods that would have been prominent on the king's table. So it is in response to his own disinterest that Daniel says, no, I, I, I object to the food. Now, if you're keeping notes, there's three points down below how to biblically protest. These are embedded in this first point to form a conviction. Let me hit the first one. Appeal, don't demand. Appeal, don't demand. It says, I don't want you to just look at what he objected to, but I, I want you to understand how he objected. So in verse 9, it says, he's got this objection. He's got this conviction. The conviction doesn't line up with his personal interest. Hey, hey just really quickly, examine what you consider your convictions. And if all of your convictions line up with your personal interests, I'm going to argue those aren't really even convictions. Those are just points of view. And, and one of the things that you need to see throughout this story, if you're going to formulate a conviction, be careful what is at the center of your conviction. The big question, because what's at the center of your conviction, that thing better be worth dying for. 
So, so Daniel formulates a conviction about the king's food, and then what he does is, here's how you biblically protest or object. The first thing he does is he appeals. He doesn't demand. It says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He didn't demand. He didn't go on a hunger strike. He didn't insist. He asked. In doing this, his approach begins to create a witness for Daniel and his three friends that we'll see throughout the passages that we look at. Look at verse 9. And, Daniel gave God, or, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So Daniel gets favor. Why? What was the mechanism that brought God's favor? Well, it was twofold. It was what Daniel chose to make a conviction and then in the way that he chose to honor that conviction. He asked, he, didn't, he appealed, he didn't demand. It says, and God bless him, but I want you to see this. God's blessing doesn't mean it's smooth sailing. Look at what happens next. There's another obstacle for Daniel. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? So the king says, I've got compassion on you, but I'm not going to grant you what you've asked for because it could put me in danger. And based out of self-interest, even though I have compassion on you, I'm not changing your diet. Which leads to the second point. Appeal, don't demand. Second point, explore other options. Daniel gets creative. He starts to think, is there another way? Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, or Mishael, and Azariah, he goes to the next guy. He's talked to the chief of the eunuchs now. He talks to the steward that this guy's put in charge, and he comes up with a plan, an idea. He says in verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel is doing everything that he can to avoid direct conflict. And I would just caution you, church, save your conflict. Save your convictions for the things that really matter. And the things that really matter are determined by who is at the center of your conviction. Daniel's motivation in this protest is so that he can be, obey God because he understands and believes that the most important thing in his life is the favor of God on his life. Again, he has to eat vegetables for 10 days. Who of us would do that? Okay, but that's what he does. Here's the third one. The goal is God's favor. Verse 14. So the, this steward of the chief of the eunuchs listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance, get this, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Would somebody explain that to me? There's a group of guys that are eating from the king's table all the best food of the land and drinking wine. Daniel's in the vegetables and water, and just for 10 days. And after 10 days, the guys who are eating the vegetables are fatter. So what was up with the vegetables? Did they like soak them in butter? Did they, did they sprinkle hollandaise sauce on top of them? Did they cover them with cheese? Like there's some pretty decent things you can do to make vegetables unvegetable-y. Is, is that what's going on in the text? No, I would argue all day that God shows up. Daniel earns God's favor because he formed a conviction and in the way that he protested, the way that he objected. And here's the cool thing that I see in this text as well. 
the blessing didn't just end with the food. It carried over into all aspects of their life. Look at verse 16. So the steward took away the food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Then verse 17, has for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Form a conviction. Four men enduring the worst that maybe the worst culture of all time could throw at them, saying, no, I'm going to stand for God. And God shows up and he blesses. Here's the second point. Embrace either way faith. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. Let me set the stage. This is a, a different narrative, a different context. Daniel isn't in Daniel chapter 3, but it's his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happens at the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gets this great idea. He sets up a statue. The text tells us it's nine feet wide at its base. It's 90 feet tall. And he sets it up in the plains of Dura, and he says, everyone in my kingdom, when they hear the music, you need to bow down and worship this image that I've established. Now, theologians debate what was the image. Some think it was an image to a Babylonian god. Others think it was actually a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Some theologians have contemplated it might have been a chocolate bunny. It's unclear in the text. Okay? And the sad reality that I have to deal with as I look around the room is there's a whole generation of people in here who know this story because of animated vegetables from a cartoon. But such is life, right? So, it's set up, the music plays, and now our three friends, Rack Shack and Benny, they got to make a choice. Are they going to form a conviction? Are they going to stand? So they don't bow down. It says this, that some of the men in that kingdom, the Chaldeans, come back to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. There's three guys. They're not bowing down. It's interesting if you look at the text. It says this in verse 8. Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. That word maliciously means to hate without cause, to devour. And there are some in this room that I'm fully aware of that you're going to go into the holiday season and some of you are, um, well, it's, it's more than dislike. It might even be crossing into malicious. You are hated without cause by family, by coworkers, by friends because of convictions that you've formed to stand for Jesus Christ. You're not alone. What you're experiencing is nothing new. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's malicious intent in the heart of these other men that bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the king. And the king has a moment of grace. He says, hey, listen, I'm going to give you another shot. The music's going to play again. If you bow down, everything's going to be well with you. But if you do not, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace Here's something that I want you to see in the text because I think that it's important. When the men brought their accusation against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 12, look what they do, how they frame it. They say, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So to the Chaldeans who ratted out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the issue is these men are in rebellion to Nebuchadnezzar. It's personal. 
But what happens is, as Nebuchadnezzar calls the men before him, look what he says. But if you do not worship, verse 15, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar goes, it isn't personal, this is about God. Their conviction represents their God, and now we've got a battle against deities. See, see, their convictions were so closely tied to their faith that it couldn't be missed. And please hear the response of these three men. It's pretty fantastic. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. <laughs> God has the power to deliver us. And he might show up and deliver us out of, his, out of your hands. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. There's a conviction, and at the heart of that conviction is their commitment to their God. As you evaluate your convictions, please understand those things that you hold as convictions that you're willing to die for, you better be willing to do what you say you're going to do because the world is watching. And when we form our convictions, we need to see who is at the center of our convictions. It's interesting what happens next. I'll jump down to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three bound, bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true. He says in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, but I see four men. They're not bound, they're unbound, walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I don't have time to develop it this morning. I would just say this. That is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. In the midst of the fire, Jesus is with these men. They formulated a conviction. They said that they would stand for God, and God is with them and favors them in that moment. King calls out to the three guys, come out of the fire. They come out of the fire. It says you can't even smell the smoke on their garments. Not a hair on their head is singed. And I want you to see, in response to the conviction that these men had, the response that it generated from the king. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what was the motivation that these men had for defying the king's mandate? Was it self-interest? Was it in defense of their personal rights and liberties? Or was it in obedience to God? Well, that becomes clear when you see the response of the king. And glory being given to the name of God. And listen, I know that there are people in this room that are, that are at a crossroads. And, and, and you're seeking wisdom. Because some of you right now, quite honestly, you're right at the point where you're being asked to bow down. I think specifically of law enforcement. I think specifically of teachers trying to navigate what they're being asked to do in a public school context, what they're being asked to teach. And these are difficult decisions. And what I would ask you is you formulate your convictions in these things, get to the heart of the matter, who is at the center of your conviction? And by standing on your conviction, does it just give you greater personal freedom or does it bring glory to the God 
that you serve. One more, Daniel 6, flip over a couple chapters. Here's the last one. The time to prepare is now. How to survive cultural conflict, form a conviction, embrace either way faith, and the time to prepare is now. Again, let me set the context quickly in Daniel 6. Daniel is now 80 years old. He has served his entire life foreign pagan kings. Babylon has fallen by the time we get to Daniel 6. Now the Perds and the Medes the Medes and the Persians are in power. They are the superpower of the day. Their king is a guy by the name of Darius. And it's interesting, Darius, in looking out along all of his servants, he, he decides that it's going to go king, then Daniel. He's going to place Daniel second in command. And to Daniel's political rivals and his enemies, that's unacceptable. So they begin to talk amongst themselves and they've got a problem because Daniel's character and his reputation and his service is spotless. They can't bring any charge against him to King Darius. So what they, they scheme to do, what they come up with is they say, if we're going to bring a charge against Daniel, we've got to bring it in relation to his obedience to his God. So they approach Darius with this plan. They're like, hey, here's the idea. Um, for a period of time, I'd have to look at the text, it's either 30 or 40 days, 30 days, it says in verse 7, nobody gets to pray to anyone but you. Darius is like, this is an awesome plan. And then they remind him, they say, okay, if you adopt this plan, if you set out this degree, you need to understand, according to our law, not only, not only is it now law, it can't be changed, not even by you, Darius. He says, why would I want to change such an awesome idea that you guys have come up with? And he signed it into law. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. And he got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Okay, so Daniel knows that if he prays, he's going to be thrown into the lion's den. So what does he do? He goes home in front of open windows facing Jerusalem and he gets down on his knees three times a day and he prays to his God. Why would he do that? Well, the key is in the text because it's what he always did. It's because of what he always did. If you want to have victory in the crisis, you better develop the disciplines in the process. Every good coach knows this. If you're a basketball coach and um, you're at the end of a game and your team's down by one and one of your players gets fouled and he's got to go to the free throw line and shoot one and one with the game on the line, who do you want shooting those free throws? You want the kid that runs out of practice at the end of every day as quick as he can or you want the gym rat who before he leaves practice shoots 100 free throws a day one after another. He can make free throws with his eyes closed. He's practicing so much. It's just muscle memory. He's put in the disciplines to prepare for this moment. That's the guy you want on the line. And this idea that we're going to become super Christians with incredible faith in the moment of crisis is nonsense. The way that you stand in the moment of crisis is you develop the disciplines in the process. Daniel goes back to the things that he always did. Again, the Chaldeans rat him out to King Darius. King Darius, though he's sad about it, takes Daniel to the lion's den. I just want you to listen to what he says because it gives witness to Daniel's testimony. He says this in verse 24. 
as he came near to the den where Daniel was. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, hear this, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. See, see that discipline, that putting habits in place, fully observable, full witness to the king. So the king goes home after sending Daniel into the lion's den. He doesn't sleep real good. He gets up early in the morning, the text says, and he rushes back to the lion's den. Verse 20, and as Darius came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, there it is again, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel cries out in verse 21, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So Daniel is spared. But there's something going on much greater than just the fact that Daniel is spared. Do you see what is being witnessed to the king? <laughs> Daniel, one man, will affect two kingdoms and two kings through a testimony of forming convictions and knowing how to protest. So Daniel is spared, but I want you to hear what Darius does next. I find it interesting. Verse 25, Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. And I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Formulate a conviction. Embrace either, one, either way faith, and the time to prepare is now. And I know that what I'm saying for some of you, it's difficult because I'm arguing that you should form convictions where at the center of your convictions is something worthy of your convictions, and that is your faith in Jesus Christ. And some of you are saying, well, what about my personal freedoms? What about my personal rights? All of these other things that we mourn, I'm asking you, if you're going to form a conviction that you're willing to suffer the consequences for, make sure that conviction brings light on the gospel and it's cloaked in selflessness, not selfishness. You're like, I'm not sure. Well, good, you get to ask questions next week. But I'd encourage you in just a couple more things. Everything that I've taught is clearly taught by Peter. You can look it up, three passages, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, and Titus 3. But here's what I'd like to challenge you just as I close. Rather than even look to those passages, I'd ask you to consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, his example. Selflessness incarnate, left heaven, took on the form of a bondservant, was obedient even to death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. And I close just with this passage, 1 Peter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is simple. Teach us to be a people that have the courage 
to put our trust in Christ alone. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.